Welcome to another episode of Why Indigenous Words and Ideas. I'm your host, uh, Arsek Tekun, uh, aka Daniel. I'm co-host Diana with me tonight, and I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Piali, how are you? I, my name is Diana Albarran Gonzalez, and I am originally from Mexico, from Chiapas. So we are uh, neighbors. <laughs> we have like share Pacapapa somewhere there, like from Mesoamerica with with Daniel and yeah so I just handed my PhD thesis just before the lockdown so it was very very good timing so I don't have to I wouldn't imagine to be writing the thesis this at this moment so it's good that I'm just waiting for examination. Awesome congratulations on that and um, thanks look forward to see how that moves forward Mm. and maybe to start off we wanted to um, maybe discuss a little bit about the different contexts of it first of all so you mentioned mesoamerica which Mm. is one of the ways that i also identify um Mm. ancestrally but that's a it that's kind of an interesting region because that includes Mm. several countries in it and which have kind of their own colonial contexts and you know chapas you know in particular being close to you know guatemala or isimuleo and yucatan like it kind of divided up other cultural regions too Mm. Right. So a lot of your work has been with the Maya communities there. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, maybe what's the context of, of Chiapas and, and, and for you, even within your identity, uh, working there as well? Yeah. So um, I was born and raised in Chiapas, is a southern state of Mexico next to the border of Guatemala. And just a little bit of background. And let's, I will start to explain like how, if I should identify myself and how I'm, I'm doing currently and because i live overseas like because i am in diaspora so that's something very important to to notice let's say in mexico we there's a lot of indigenous communities groups like 68 different indigenous communities which is called pueblos originarios and then but nationalism and education system and after colonization there was this movement and education in in the 1920s to uh, with Jose Vasconcelos, Secretary of Education, and there was this, the cosmic race, La Raza Cosmica, this new race of mestizos, is the mix between an indigenous person and an Spaniard or education system. So if you ask many Mexicans, they identify as with mestizaje, like Chile, like for the South, is criollo, which is like descendant European, like European descent, and that's it, like no mix with indigenous. So many Latin American cultures, they don't even acknowledge the indigenous heritage. But for me, it's also like following the words of Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui, Cusicanqui, the Aymara scholar. She talks about the need of decolonizing mestizos or echoing the words of uh, Aguilar Gil, another um, uh, Misha scholar from Mexico. It's like, we are not mestizos, we are the indigenized indigenous so how the indigeneity or the, the process of mestizaje was a whitening process so explaining this to someone in Aotearoa it's, it's it's very complex so I've been saying now when they ask me like how do you identify I was say I'm, I'm saying native Latin America Latin American because if you say native American they will place it in the in the U.S. context right like the the native tribes in, in, in the US. But then if you say Latin American is a Spanish speaker country, but the, the indigenous is not there. 
So for me, in a way to explain that I am from a Latin American country, meaning that I speak Spanish, so no, from the US, but to put the indigeneity there in that identity, that's why I'm saying native Latin America, to acknowledge my indigenous heritage. So from my mom's side, um, Nahua, from Hidalgo, um, so, but of course with colonization, the indigenous language, the Nahua, they, and actually from the, the, the dialect, because Nahua is a language, and then you have the dialect within the, the very localized region of Hidalgo, which is called Mexicano, which is the Nahuatl from, from La, La Huasteca Hidalguense. And then from my dad's side, it's Purepecha, from Michoacán and Guanajuato, Jalisco, like, like a region then. So rediscovering and reconnecting with this indigenous identity for me has been, or decolonizing the mestizaje has been my, my journey. So yeah, that's a little bit of the context of Mexico, but and I work, I was, but because I was born and raised in the Mayan land of Chiapas and in the Mayan uh, worldview, also where you are born, and I know for, for, um, for Maori communities in Teo Maori, where your pito, your belly bottom is buried, you are linked strongly to that land. And in Mayan worldviews as well, like being birthed, it's, it's rooted with blood in the land. So I was born there and, and I'm, I'm way more familiar with Mayan culture than actually from, from Purepecha. For example, I grew up with, because I went every time with my parents, actually I have like maybe more contact with the Purepecha than the Nahua with my mom, because I would, I used to go and visit my, my family every Christmas and, and been exposed to the culture more. But, but I was, yeah, I'm, I'm way more familiar with, because of the place I was born with, with Mayan communities and my research, actually I work with, with Sotil and Celtal weavers from the highlands of Chiapas. So I'm not from the community that I work with, but I do have indigenous roots as well. So I, I like that because it's a, it shows the complexity of what we were dealing with. And on one hand, you know, it's, it's complicated because of our current reality and the way that identity has been constructed within various, mm. you know, through colonization and through different types of colonialisms as well, right? So here in Aotearoa, we can talk about just our whakapapa or our ancestry, mm. right? But in another place, like you have to prove that in a different kind of way, like in the US, for example. And if you're not from a particularly recognized tribe, then you wouldn't have legal claim either. And so there is, on one hand, like the legal definitions that drive identity. And even it's like the way that Inehi, the Mexican government recognized indigeneity in Mexico is based on language. Yeah, and living in communities. So if you are descendant from an indigenous person who speak the language, but then if you lose that, which happens a lot of in, with, mod, with modernity. So many people are just erased by it. So actually, like I was, I was seeing, a, um, I think, a, a YouTube video from uh, someone from the U.S. And he was saying, comparing the, the uh, native identity from the U.S. to Mexico. And if we use that, even if you use a 25% uh, blood quantum from the U.S. in Mexico, 80% of the population would be indigenous. Yeah. But because coloniality is like, oh, no, you know, like, and it's, it's something that mm, people don't want to recognize indigenous heritage, but also, and I speak with a lot of other 
let's say, mestizos, educated mestizos like me, and who were born in the land, because that's that's something very important. Like when I'm in Mexico, I wouldn't dare to say that I'm indigenous. And not because I don't feel, but because based on the historical oppression that's still currently being suffered by indigenous communities, I, I would be I feel that I would be taking a place that that it doesn't my yeah, I I shouldn't be taking. So no that, worries. that last thing you were talking about there was mm. uh, um, you're proud of the indigenous heritage, but because of the context, it's different the way you have to present it, whether you're where, where, when you're in uh, Chiapas versus when you're here or in other places. And I think that's an important thing for us to push in indigenous studies, I think, mm. is that the kind of, not just a global perspective, but becoming literate um, in these different experiences across the globe because mm. of settler colonialism, in like the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, that creates a, a different landscape for the politics of indigeneity. Whereas mm. in places like Mexico, like you said, if you were to use that legal framework of the US of blood quantum, most people in Mexico would have some indigenous ancestry, uh, which is why they erase indigeneity mm. um, and have a, you know, kind of a legal framework based off of language which is mm. similar in Nishimuleo or Guatemala. Like, mm. And for me, this was, a, you know, I remember when I was going to get my, my Guatemalan passport um, in Guatemala and man, the racist stuff that they would say to me when I would put down my lineage, but then they would get confused too because, you know, I, you know me having grown up in the different places that I have and mm. you know, with a lot of influence, so similar to you, where you were connected with Mayas, I was a Maya that was connected to Pacific Islanders. Mm. Um, and the way they think about identity and genealogy really influenced me. So when I was there, I was like, oh, here's my genealogy. You know, I'm from here, here, here. And they'd be like, no, but, you know, in Spanish, mm -hmm. I remember what this person said to me at the office was like, pero no andas descalzo, right? So it means like you're not barefoot, yeah. right? So equating race with class, mm -hmm. but then also erasing it because you can only be one thing. Mm -hmm. But because of my my dad's family, where I have the most knowledge of my indigenous uh, cultures and, and ancestry, they're actually urban, right? And so mm -hmm. that's when you have these urban populations, now you have multiple different ethnicities merging, even though they're all Maya, at least in my case, they're different kinds of Maya. And so, mm -hmm. but because the, the politics of, oh, which one are you? And I was like, well, I'm all of these. And then I'm also have African roots as well, mm -hmm. right? Which is the other one that like indigeneity is a race, but then the anti-black racism is huge as well within um, these areas. And so it becomes very, it's a very complicated landscape. And so I think, you know, for us, we have to constantly, I, I feel a similar kind of thing, you know, it, knowing that it's defined differently in different places, you end up having to express in different ways, depending on who your audience is. And on one hand, staying true to the way we identify, mm -hmm. But then at the same time, being aware of the, the politics um, and the current oppressions. Your episode on on indigenous identity and how you're talking about the, the continental or the elder indigenous and stuff, I totally resonate with that because at the end, and I think about because I talk about the pluriverse and pluriverso based on the Zapatistas. I, it's like I I dream 
with a pluriverse of indigeneity, a pluriverse of the indigenous identity, when what we can acknowledge our indigeneity, but also acknowledging that there are different ways of being indigenous. And, and in Mexico, I don't know, maybe you experience that in Guatemala as well, that if you are born in the US, but from indigenous parents or from, from Mexican parents, it's like, oh no, you're not Mexican anymore because you are from the US. So that distinction between you are no longer from here because you weren't born here. And then, you know, like it's, it's, it's mixed with the identity, ethnicity, race, colorism, uh, nationality, a lot of stuff. And, and then, for example, like, well, if you see me, like maybe I'm not as, I'm brown, but I'm not as dark skinned maybe as comparing, and I'm taller comparing to like maybe people from Chiapas. So at many times when, even when I said like, where are you from? I'm from Chiapas. Like, oh no, you're not. It's like, ah, uh, why? Because, oh, you're not dark. You're not dark skin and short. And I was like, okay, so that's it. That's one way just to be and to look like, you know, like this imaginarium of, of, especially with mestizos and on other like non-indigenous groups. It's like, if you're indigenous, then you should dress with traditional garment. You couldn't be like, as you said, like classism as well there. So you have to be this, you have to be that. And if you don't fit that model of indigeneity, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. I, and I heard that, that, that thing here going on. I was very amazed when I heard about the white passing Maori, that term, white passing Maori, and how they, the awareness that they said, like, that they should have as Maori, but they've been treated differently because they look as white passing, you know, like, those notions for me has been very interesting because, yeah, it's, it's putting indigeneity in, in a single box, and no one can get out of that. But it's like actually a, un mundo donde quepan todos los mundos, no? A world with many worlds can fit. And we, by, based on our context and circumstances, we, we change and we have different identities that can actually coexist. It's not one or the other. And I wonder too, I feel like the, um, there's also this global hierarchy of indigeneity as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like on one hand, they're oppressed, but who may also have greater visibility globally to represent to be represented as indigenous. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, again, looking at like classism in the context of, of, of Mesoamerica or Latin America. And the term that I remember when I was, I'd hear it growing up, like the I, campesino, right? Yeah. And then I remember for the, I, I just kind of had an idea in my mind, like somebody from the country, right? A rural person. But then when I was reading and I got older, you know, kind of my late teens and early 20s started to try to, understand more of the history and i remember in english they translated it as peasant and i was mm-hmm. like what <laughs> what and i was like wait a minute because i was like i identified with campesinos even though i had you know uh, a, a strong urban maya mm-hmm. you know background like because it's it's classed even if you're in an urban setting you you know kind of coded as rural <laughs> even yeah. if you have multiple generations in the in the city and then also thinking about the difference in the colonial projects where mm. in Latin America, again, different places are different, of course, right? Like Argentina, Uruguay, we might have different uh, demographic situations, but places like, you know, Guatemala, Chiapas, you know, particularly Southern Mexico and um, Bolivia, Peru, you know, Ecuador have really high percentages of kind of undeniably indigenous people. And then mm. arguably even more, of you know complicated indigeneities because of the history 
but because of the extraction, like that mm. it wasn't this settler project like in the US or here in Aotearoa where settlers in a sense come to attempt to erase or replace. Mm. Um, but then those settler colonial nations are still extracting from these indigenous, oh, yeah. the, the campesinos, the peasants of the global south. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, that also comes into play too as to uh, our, our lack of visibility oftentimes. And also because like you were mentioning a lot of really great resources um, and, you know, I've read some as well, that, but they're in Spanish. And so sometimes mm. the language, that depending on yes. who colonized you and where you can, you know, whether you have the ability to read that colonial language or not. And then even the colonial languages are ranked, right? You have the, the Anglophone, then the Francophone, and then the Hispanophone. Yes. So even the European is ranked racially. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's why for me, uh, let's say being bilingual, well, and I'm not bilingual, like I'm way, like I, I arrive into English way later in my life. Like I, it's not like my daughter that, that you know, like they, learning both languages at the same time, but it's like I, I had to learn like later on because I didn't grow up with, with the language. And then, but for me, it's been great, the ability to read in both languages because I can access um, indigenous studies literature from, from the, let's say the global north, and then from the global south as well, and to see the difference in perspective and, and ideas and stuff. So even like using this as this bridge, you know, like to translate one ideas from one uh, context to the other, it's very, I think it's very enriching. So I, I was very, like, for example, that's something that helped me a lot because I was very insecure about doing ethnographic research in in Chiapas in my context because I haven't been living in Mexico for it's eight years now and I've been living overseas in different countries but but I'm rooted in Chiapas like my parents live there my sisters live there so I go often and I grew up there so that's what that the textiles is my is my topic as well so I can recognize who's from this community because of the the way they dress and stuff because it's it's part of my upbringing but I was very kind of aware that I wouldn't be spending enough time in the field. So I was very aware of, of and concerned about like the lack of spending time, let's say. So combining and, and having, but definitely I, um, it helped me a lot to, to acknowledge, to recognize that the fact that I'm in Aotearoa and I'm in, in Tiarapultam in the Maori school and my, my main, my main supervisor, Jenny Wilson, she's, she's a Maori weaver and stuff. So, you know, like um, having this other view of indigeneity from Aotearoa really helped to have a different lens, something that people in the context always wouldn't have, you know? So I kind of identify, or at least the story that I tell myself is like, I can, actually my contribution is because of this outsider perspective so that's why my research position is actually an outsider within like from the feminist uh, theories like Collins that is the border the border between different uh, between spaces with unequal power so in Mexico I acknowledge that I'm privileged very privileged as a mestiza and especially with like lighter skin sort of so and and studying a PhD in a English-speaking first-world country, going into doing field research opened me doors. 
I, I totally acknowledge that and recognize it. But then if I'm here, I'm a woman of color, you know, like I'm, I'm a brown woman who's doing from a third so-called, which I don't like the term, but the so-called third world country trying to do uh, a PhD in a second language that is not hers. So that put me in a very unequal power campaign when I go to the field. So, but experiencing this, embodying those experiences of how you are treated and judged based on where are you located actually helped me a lot to, to create this sort of awareness of power, privilege, politics, and access. And maybe on that note, we can kind of get into what your research was, right? So mm. you do research around textiles and weaving, and you're navigating between these different power dynamics of both privilege and oppression simultaneously. Mm. Um, and what, I guess, in, in brief, what is the, why did you choose this? And, and what's kind of a main, what is it? <laughs> yeah. That you did. Okay, so the title of the, the thesis now of the research is uh, Towards a Buen Vivir Centric Design, Decolonizing Artisanal Design with Mayan Weavers from Chiapas, from the highlands of Chiapas. Um, I'm a trained industrial designer. That's what I did by my bachelor. Then I've been studying and, and lecturing design for in Mexico. I started in 2008 and I did here as well for a few years. And... Um, just and I realized based on the research of course like um, I started with social design actually like let's say my story like I started a little bit with the social design approach you know like for social change social innovation social justice because that's those topics are something that I'm very interested about but then after being in the field and, and knowing more about the field actually social design it comes with a very still lack of awareness of power, politics, privilege, and all of these issues that actually influence a lot of the context because design as a field is very Western. It is, is Western-centric education, Eurocentric. And so we come with this education of as a hegemonic designer, you know, like Western train, focusing on the, on, on, on commercial purposes and stuff. And then with that training in Latin America is this space called Diseño Artesanal or Artisanal Design. So you bring trained designers to work with indigenous artisans. And then of course there's a clash in worldviews because you as a designer, you're trained more individualistic, Diseño de Autor, or the, like the, the Italian school of Diseño de Autore and all of that, which is very individual, very, for me, like very ego driven. And then you work with indigenous communities with a communal worldview and community-based collective and with a different perception of, of, and of, of design. So I was very interested to understand this type of collaboration. So at the end, I realized social design ends up on the discourse of aid and where's the, where's the self, you know, like the autonomia and, and the self-sovereignty and, and, yeah, like it's kind of very paternalistic sometimes. It could be, not all the time, but it could be. So that's why when I found out decolonial theory, it's, it was way, it offered way more. It was richer. So because I wanted to understand more this collaboration between designers and artisans and through the, the decolonial theory uh, 
perspective, oof, it helped me to transform and, and really change my perception and understanding of design first, like acknowledging that design education is very Western centric, but then acknowledging indigenous design. Because here, when I when I'm here in Aotearoa to talk about Maori design, yes, it's a thing. But if you go to Guatemala and if you go to Chiapas and you go to other countries, like talk about Mayan design, talk about Sotil, Celtal, or Nahua. There's a lot of colonization of knowledge, like designers just creating the these collections that at the end are developed by, for example, Mayan weavers. And, and actually Guatemala, Ishimuleo, has these great initiatives with a, they're doing an amazing job um, with a group of AFEDES uh, because they have, they've been pushing this change of le legislation to acknowledge and recognize, and actually it's in the UNESCO, uh, Indigenous Peoples' Rights. The Article 11 and 31, they talk about the designs and processes and patterns as, as part of the Indigenous rights uh, from Indigenous groups. But then designers, they go to the field, whether international or local, they go to the field. Like uh, there's one case of this European designer coming there and teaching, you know, like the design principles from the West. And then they, re they register the designs under their, their organization, their names. And then they give the copyright to be reproduced, but they are registering a, a knowledge that is not theirs that belongs to the community, you know, like, so there's a lot of issues around it. So I wanted to understand, like to decolonize design from that perspective. And at the end, I end up understanding that we as designers need to be decolonized because indigenous groups have their, their ways of designing for centuries. And, you know, and the weavers, they, they, they learn how to do, uh, designing, weaving, embroidery, drawing, everything, since they are very young, they have way more experience than me that I'm spending design education, you know? So, but we don't recognize them as them. So if we approach with this hierarchical, the hierarchy of knowledges and epistemologies, then what about autonomia of the groups? What about the, the indigenous knowledges that they can actually protect and, and design and create base, based on their own worldviews is like they have been creative of their lives and then we go these educated designers knowing what's best for them so it's like nah i don't think so <laughs> So one of the things that we've talked about in the past with textiles is how, you know, on one hand you have these power dynamics and not only are they dismissing this whole collective, rich, long-standing history of design, but that that design in, you know, you mentioned epistemology, right? It, it encompasses or it holds ways of knowing mm -hmm. and, uh, and knowledge in particular within the designs. And in many ways, I feel like the textiles have not only, I don't like using the word preserved anymore. Like I used to use mm. preserve quite a bit. And I feel like maybe now I'm shifting towards saying that they've maintained a connection mm. to ancestral teachings while continuing to adapt and expand them. When in the face of like, we have this history or, you know, before the Maya territory got cut up between, you know, Belize, Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, and, and parts of El Salvador, 
mm-hmm. you know, before it got cut up into all these different countries, like there was this kind of cultural region of Mes- in, you know, southern parts of Mesoamerica. And we had books, like, you know, mm-hmm. written books, you know, and different types of writing. Um, the, that which has survived is mostly recognized as that which is carved out of relief in stone. Um, but then you have this story of uh, Diego de Landa, for example, who burns all of these books. And I think there's only a handful pre-contact um, texts that that were saved in a sense and preserved, most of which are now in Europe, are, are contradictorily as well. And so there's this idea that all this knowledge, I mean, a lot of it, those records were destroyed, literally. But mm. on the other hand, there's also this story of resilience, I believe, through the textiles that maintained a connection to these stories and i guess what was your what's your your take on that and i know you were kind of exploring some of the the knowledge behind the design as well yeah like um let's say slogan came from zacatepec as the afedes uh movement that they were when they were in, in 2016 when they were claiming and fighting for to for collective intellectual property because for them designs are not part of one a person but it's a collective because it's shared knowledge so they were they were pushing that initiative and they were using the slogan los libros son los no los textiles son los libros que la colonia no pudo quemar uh, which means uh takes us out the books that the colony could not burn so this was kind of my central point and central statement so if we consider the, the textiles as the as books and source of knowledge then i started to explore uh, basically, let's say two main pathways, but all entangled, of course. That's why I'm talking about Holoville, the, the backstrap loom weaving, telar de cintura, as methodology. That was kind of my proposal as well, using textiles as even as a, as a methodological approach. And um, so the main threads, let's say, that I explore through like the of textiles, one is textiles as resistance and so I talk about being textiles, like because you embody textiles by practicing, by wearing, by the knowledge. Like it has so, so, so many like different levels of, of, of meaning. So textiles as resistance uh, linked into resisting colonization, into resisting, for example, with the group that I work, uh, it's a collective, independent collective called Malacate Taller Experimental Textile. Uh, so they are, uh, the main group or the founding group, they are from Sinacantan, uh, so Tzotzil women, uh, Batsi Ants, the Las Mujeres Verdaderas, so the true women. With them, I started to understand how Texas are part of their identity, who they are. Being a weaver is part of a big part and important to identity and life and knowledge and even maths, science, you know, like you need to you need to be counting a lot the threads, like to make these patterns. Well, you know them, like but um, you people won't be able to see it. But you know, like the symbols are very, very hard to achieve in a backstroke and weaving. So resistance, so they have this approach to design that is called innovación como resistencia, like resist, uh, innovation as resistance. So what they do and the way they approach stuff is they have different strategies. So they, they have been rescuing, uh, for example, material, cotton, pre-colonial cotton, which is called uh, algodón coyuchil, 
and they used to grow it in, in Chiapas in the south, but because of cafe, uh, coffee plantations, like it was substitute because it was growing like cotton grows in, in very hot weather. And um, so they are starting to grow cotton again, the type of cotton. And one community is growing them and another one community that still spin wool, or they are good spinners of wool, they are teaching the others how to do spinning, but with cotton. So they are creating networks of, of collaboration between them. Also, they rescue um, patterns and motifs that have been kind of lost because, for example, Sinacantan, it's a, it's a very amazing example of, of innovation and design because part of the festivities, they have to, they wear new stuff. And we, they have two main festivities in January and in August. So they trade like, it's like the autumn and winter, the autumn winter collection and spring summer because they create a lot of new patterns. And since the seventies, they introduce, um, based on the government, a state policy, uh, state program, um, horticulture, like growing flowers. So you can see now after that, the flowers are in all the garments, but they did have more geometrical stuff. So now they are kind of combining both and rescuing, but from their own worldview. So they know what's sacred, they know what, they, what can be modified because they are part of the context. And for example, some communities, they still measure with the body and, and ripping the fabric rather than using scissors. And it's a different perception, but this like, it's being resourceful if you don't have scissors. Like how many people, like, I, I don't know what you feel, but sometimes I feel like because we grow in, let's say developing countries with limited access to stuff, we have to be resourceful. So we don't have the machines for a lot of stuff. So you just create here and there, you take this and you make something that will help you with your task, right? So they are the same. So they're still preserving that measuring system instead of imposing this from a, let's say, colonial or, or capitalistic or capitalist or, or modernity, like efficiency and all of that. Like when you have to be effective and fast and all that stuff, like, no, they have their own rhythm. So they, they respect their own rhythms as well instead of like a nine to five thing. So they weave when they can because weaving happens in between planting and harvesting coffee and, and having festivities and responsibilities with, with the community. So it's, it's part of life. And, um, and also how they are exchanging knowledges with other communities. Like for example, it's a type of poncho, which is triangular called Keshkemetl. That that's very particular from the center and the Gulf of Mexico. It's pre-colonial. And, but it's became very popular now. So now they are adopting that shape, for example, but with the techniques and patterns from different communities from the region. So it's, you know, like this notion of resisting by preserving, rescuing and reactivating their own the designs and patterns and motifs from their own worldview. So that's, let's say, one avenue that I explore. And the other avenue was the meanings inside the patterns, like, because there's a lot of knowledge embedded in there. Like, for example, the meluch, the symbol, which is a representation of the, the Cosmovision Maya, the Mayan worldview. And I like how you say that you keep Cosmovision rather than Cosmo translating to cosmology, because in Spanish is La Visión del Cosmos. So I like the Cosmovision idea, and I kept it in Spanish, following your example, <laughs> 
because it's it's how this symbol can represent the the uh, Mayan worldview and the vision the vision of the cosmos so la, uh, la cosmovisión. So this represents uh, the symbol the Meluche represents the Earth with the cardinal points, and in the center with the seed, and within the seed grows the, the sacred tree of La Ceiba, which is the, the sacred Mayan tree, and this tree connects the underworld, the world of the disease in the roots. And then in the trunk is the world of the living, what we are living. And then in, in, uh, on top, you have the world of the gods and how these worlds are interconnected. So it's related to spirituality. So I use symbols, this symbol as a, as a big source of, I don't know to say inspiration or, or knowledge in order to, in a way to, as a metaphor, for the research approach. So for example, one part of the Meluch symbol connects because of the cardinal points, the East and the West are connected by a line because that's the projection of the pathway of the sun. And so that notion of the pathway of the sun and the cycle and the time, I use this idea. And also, I think you mentioned that already in, in another episode, but for Mesoamerican, Mayan and other Mesoamerican cultures, there's this uh, notion of, of duality, but that are complementary. We don't have like one thing or the other, you know, like it, it's the complement of the feminine and the masculine, the death and life. Everything is connected and you can't have one or the other. And a lot of the deities, uh, Ometeotl, Hunapkub, are dual, you know, the energy, uh, masculine and feminine at the same time. So, and also day and night, life and death. So I use this notion of a cycle as well, where the designer or the researcher have to go into the darkness, into the underworld, to into the uncertainty, because you don't know what you won't find. But then that allows the knowledge to emerge and to flourish and to go into the light. So these constant cycles of of knowing and not knowing, but always in collaboration with to letting the knowledge, the speck or the seed to emerge. So also this notion of tension and cycle and flexible and tension, it also, uh, I use it as a metaphor for the, for the research because we can't impose, and especially from a decolonial perspective, I can just arrive as a researcher and like, this is the thing that you're going to do. Of course not. You need to, uh, to create as a collective, a collective research. So just letting things happen and be guided by them because they are the, in, in co-design, using co-design, they are the expert of, the, of their own life and knowledge. So for me, it's more about listening and how can I contribute into this rather than arriving with my very, you know, like a certain <laughs> and, and powerful position as a researcher. So yeah, there's a lot of talk, but uh, yeah, yeah, I kind no. of try to summarize it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, it's a many years of work, and it's so it's hard to. Uh, you did a really great job of, of putting that in a, uh, a condensed version because I know you've done heaps here, and like. Oh, and, and also I want to I want to acknowledge you and recognize you publicly here because your a conversation that we had once about when I have I was kind of intersecting this axis of the world of the living with the world of the gods and all of that and the notion of time and the cycles based on our conversation you remind me and and very uh 
uh, accurate your point about the notion of time as a spiral time. So you helped me to really rethink about what I was illustrating and it looked very flat to actually create 3D models and, and, and to kind of understand and show visually that notion of a cycle and time. And that I totally thank you very much because that conversation really triggered that part of becoming from 2D to 3D. Oh, no, awesome. I, I really enjoyed um, what you did with it too because it's a hard thing, right? It's like, uh, for me, that's part of the Cosmovision is at least the way I think, one of the ways that I think about it is what you see beyond the the surface, right? And mm. so and you've done a great job of that. Like where, you know, the, these textiles are, are more than, than the geometric patterns or, or even floral patterns or whichever patterns they are, there, there's this intimate, not only knowledge, but investment in mm. creating them as you, as, uh, as you very eloquently put. And, you know, that's what I kept thinking of is there's this epistemology of intimacy is what I kept kind of thinking about, of, mm. of, you know, like being able to, because you're close, right. With the, the backstrap loom, like, so even just, the, the adding or removing of pressure in that process, like it's just these subtle things. And it reminds me, when you talk about measuring with hands and I think about my dad, like he always would use his hands to, you know, there's a certain ways that you, you, you put your hand to measure different types of things, whether it's people or, mm. or, or something else. Right. And, and also think about cooking, like with my mom or my aunties and the, you know, like, yeah, like <laughs> everything with your hands. And, yeah. you know, it's like there, there isn't, it's it's not that you can't use these these like measurements, right? But that that's a, a whole other epistemology. That's a whole other mm -hmm. way of knowing even your food or your clothing or whatever, right? Is if you have to, and it shows where we're at in society as well. Like if you have to, we have to write this down and we have to go back and look at it and we have to look at these measurements because we have, in a sense, we have lost the sense of intimacy as modern subjects in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of that intimate knowledge, you know, and there's certain things I can cook without recipes or oh, yeah. measurements, you know, because I have a closer intimate knowledge with it. But there's other things that I can't. Tortillas, yeah. masa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, no, there's no measurements. Because yeah, no. You, Just you a come. pinch of salt. Yeah, exactly. You know, you you have to know you it feel so it. well. Yeah, that you can feel it. Yeah. You can smell it. You can touch mm. it. Taste it. And that goes, it seems, I kept thinking about food and ecology as you're talking mm -hmm. about, again, these textiles and even the cotton and all of that. So there's this, this whole realm of, of the cosmovision or this cosmic worldview that continually comes up in all these different relationships. And I think that's where that pluriverse comes in, right? Like mm -hmm. There's these multiple worlds that exist within the world that all come together And this may have been also the case before colonization, but has definitely been intensified because of colonization is the role of women or the gendered nature of this particular mm. knowledge. Um, like I even cooking, right? I mentioned my mom and my aunties, like, you know, I cook. So my kids are going to be, they're going to grow up knowing their dad as, a, as someone who cooks this stuff. Mm. But for me, this was gendered knowledge. This was the women's knowledge. Um, and, in, and in textiles as well, like if we go to Ishimuleo, it's mostly women who you'll see who are mm. wearing the textiles and who are wearing the traditional regalia. Um, there's an exception of like Lake Atitlan, where um, 
men will wear it there and in some of the areas of the highlands. But for the most part, it's you're more likely to see women wearing this clothing, producing this type of clothing than you are men. And one of the stories I remember for me was, you know, part of that is because of patriarchy and sexism, right? Mm -hmm. Like where when men were given certain opportunities over women to go to the city or to work, um, on one hand, it gave them power uh, over women in their communities. But on the other, it also exposed them to, you know, volatile racism in those areas, in, which is where some of them began to remove the textiles and those mm -hmm. traditional clothings because of, of the abuse they would receive. And so they would quickly adopt um, modern Western clothing, for lack of better words, um, and mm -hmm. replace the traditional regalia that was everyday clothing before. Um, and so I don't know what your thoughts on that, but I think that's something, an interesting element there too of the role of women's knowledge. Yeah, for example, a thing we're finding that I didn't know, they said backstrap loom weaving is Mayans believe that backstrap loom weaving was taught by the goddess Ixchel, the goddess of fertility and love and the moon. And there are two representations of Ixchel. Sometimes she's like a young woman, so she has like a rabbit and, you know, like all these symbols, a snake in the head, like the symbols that recognize her. But when she's an elder, she has a, a loom. So in, these are in pre-colonial codex writings in our books that were <laughs> like the, the ones that survived that actually have uh, the Ixchel goddess depicted with the, with the loom. And there's a lot of analogies currently about like actually there's a knowledge that has been lost not a lot of the people and not a lot of the weavers know about that you know like the Ixchel goddess teaching them how to do loom like Holovil uh, and but the meanings of the loom still present and most of them they will know like for example the 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 way that at the top you uh you tied it to a tree that's the umbilical cord and your connection to mother earth and then you have the head you have the the warp is the substance this uh, sustenance and then the motion of opening the threads and changing the direction is the breathing and then you have uh, the machete or the halante in in totil you know like when they tie the, the threads together and to make it tighter the weaving tighter um it's like the strike of the heart and then you have the base as the feet and then around the waist and the motion of the weaver is the birth contractions so also similar to the goddess Ixchel, the loom is related to creation and birth so that's why it's been very gender a gender-based knowledge because it's being taught by a goddess for women however that doesn't mean that it's still the same you know, like, uh, I, and I'm talking particularly on, on, on backstrap loom weaving because normally the, the pedal loom, the big looms, for example, in Michoacan, it's been done more by, by men. But the backstrap loom uh, has been attached to women, like, for many years. But th that this has been, like, challenged within the communities. So now they are, um, there's a, a, a weaver from Aldama, uh, that he became, actually he became, like in this time that I've been going back and forth, uh, he became super famous. He was in, 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 in New Year's Fashion Week recently. Uh, and, um, and it's believed that because he has this, he was so out of the norm, like a male weaver, 
you know, like that's something that is not seen quite often. So it kind of got attention and then someone made a video online and it became viral and, and, um, and I was talking with him in one of the field trips and he was explaining how, uh, his mother is, it's a weaver and it took him years to actually express the wish to do, to learn, uh, to do Holobil. And then now, and it's, it's interesting because now before, uh, before weaving, uh, they pray to, to the St. Mary of Magdalene. So because of colonization, now the person or the deity that they, they pray for, it's different. So the mother asked, like, oh, you have to just ask Virgin Mary if you, your wishes, and she will tell you, because yeah, similar to many other native groups in, in, in Turtle Island, Naviayala, in Semanawak, that you get responses to dreams. So he, he asked for, for uh, to the Virgin uh, to know if he could, for permission, if he could learn how to do weaving. And then he dreamt with with um with Saint Mary Magdalene and the, and he described the, the the you know like the dream and and he told his mother about about it and then so she accepted and she started teaching him how to do it but inside the house so he was for a couple of years he was just weaving by no one knew that he could do the weaving in the in his community because well we know that some communities are very very traditional and and patriarchy in um you know like sometimes they had, we had uh, this this romanticism of, of indigenous communities that are uh, you know like um, equality and not like no patriarchy in indigenous communities sometimes is 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 hard. Well, in Latin America in general, it's very present, and yeah. sometimes in indigenous communities because of Christianity is like huge. So um, yeah, at the end he started to do it. He's been doing weaving for five years, and now he created the, the, his own well together with with the women from the community well the women of the community they accepted him he's very talented and then as a collective now they commercialize and then they do it but because of patriarchy as well they have been giving him priority because i've been following this case online i did a little bit of digital ethnography as well so i follow online a lot and the discourse of design is very individualistic. So they talk about the Totil designer, which first is unthinkable. Like indigenous designer famous is like, it was totally out of question, but now it's possible. But it's very individual as well. And it's very, and I, I don't think it's fair because when I talk to him, he always talks about collective. Most of the time he talks about his compañeras and, you know, most of the time he's, he's even his discourse is very, it's, it's aligned. Uh, for his practices, but then media portrays him very differently, and yep. and he's teaching other other men to do weaving. So in backstrap loom weaving in Mayan communities, this is very new. However, textile work in other indigenous communities, it's it's unisex. Or I told you like the the pedal loom, the big looms made of wood um, that were imported from after colonization that they still use it, for example, in Michoacán and Oaxaca, it's very male dominant. But embroidery, it's something that, for example, in, in Hidalgo, Los Tenangos de Doria, that became so famous and very, very, very plagiarized by Carolina Herrera, by Sarah, by Mango, by many others, because they became so popular, men are actually starting to do it as well. So we can see this shift within artisanal communities of gender roles. 
no super interesting right because it's like on one hand you have this 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 shifting of, of gendered you know practices but then the other like these systems that are bigger right of power mm -hmm. that reframe them even if the community is not wanting that to be the case or like you're saying with him you know he's still has this collective uh, view but the way he's being presented is as this very individualistic notion of authorship and maybe like on that it gives us an opportunity to maybe just briefly because i want to get into um ben Bibir as mm -hmm. well but like on, on that you know notion because there's an increased visibility and there's been able to be a little bit more pushback and like you mentioned like the mujeres and afedes and and this push for kind of collective intellectual property and, and the reality that we live in as far as a, a you know kind of consumer society mm. uh, with a neoliberal capitalism globally but at the same time yeah so i mean there's just this, it's this complicated reality but at the you know at the same time we're still consuming and so you, you know what are your thoughts on this idea of like ethical consumption or conscious consumption because on one hand we are consuming but then you know, how do we, can you put a, I mean, can you put a price on this stuff? Like, you know, like, I don't feel like you can. Uh, and so, I don't know, I guess my, my initial thoughts, and maybe see what you think. So my initial thoughts are, I like how I've observed certain Maori artists, for example, Tamoko. I, I've, you know, watched a few and heard from a few, for example, that will say like, we can't charge you for the Tamoko. So we're not going to charge you for that. We'll charge you for your time uh for the time that you spend with us or for like our experience but like the tamoko itself like we can't put a price on it there's too much mana around it right mm -hmm. and so i feel like i like that articulation because i feel like similarly with the textiles it's like you can't put a price on it because there's too much depth of, of mm -hmm. investment knowledge history and at the same time you know if we don't know how to produce it ourselves like we are increasingly purchase you know consuming or purchasing the textiles and so i like to think about it in that sense like how do i give a fair price for the time considering the reality that we have and where it came from and who is it coming from but at the same time like maintaining this idea of like well i can't really buy the design you know mm. what are your well, i guess what's been your experience and what are your what's your current standing on this situation Oof, that wasn't another journey <laughs> like i started in social design and ethical consumption i end up somewhere completely different and decolonization and um, which is aligned with other, like other economies and understanding that if it's consumption under capitalism is still consumption, yeah. like uh, very unfair and very, yeah, like the commodification of culture and all of that is like under the logic of capitalism, it's only discourse. My, my point of view now. Um, However, the reality is in our communities is that they have a lot of knowledge and they have a, an amazing skill that it could be valued. And combining with racism and poverty and all of that, that is the thing, the skill and stuff that they can actually make a living out of it, you know? So I've been very careful. I'm very careful to talk about this because... I've seen scholars, for example, uh, being very critical about this. Like, how come they can sell their culture? It's like, yeah, you say it under the ivory tower, in your very comfy living room, and with all the benefits and privileges that you have. 
and then you're criticizing someone that need to that that's the that's the thing that will put food on the tables and to the family so it's very easy to criticize from that privileged perspective but the reality is that that's a it's a means for an end you know like and they are the guardians and owners of that knowledge and they can they have the autonomy and sovereignty to decide what they wanted to do with it and they are the holders and they they will decide with whom and how they engage with and that's why i wanted to understand for like from malacata the group that i work their notions of the sale what is for selling and what is produced for, for ourselves because at the end they that's a, it's a knowledge that belongs to them and at the, and, and many people like from indigenous communities they have been interviewed like what do you think that mestizos are wearing your garments it's like oh it makes me happy because they appreciate what i'm doing but from another perspective it's like oh no they shouldn't be wearing that so oof, it's a pluriverse a pluriverse yeah. of opinions but because i'm approaching from buen vivir so based on buen vivir then there's there can be ethical consumption under capitalism because of the logic of the capital would exploit people and time efficiency and all of that are actually very disconnected to Buen Vivir because the rhythms of weaving, they don't follow the logic of the capital. They follow the logic of, the, of nature and they follow the, the, the logic of their own worldview. It, it seems that sometimes for many people, and I find it quite interesting, for many people it's like because we grew up or we were born under capitalism, let's say, is the only way of trading. There's no other way. Like if you trade, that's capitalism, but not necessarily. It's about the logic that you use behind why you trade, how do you trade? Because trading even means exchange of goods and services. It, it doesn't have to be a money transaction. So some communities in Mexico, not much in, in Chiapas, but in other communities, indigenous communities, they trade stuff still, el trueque, it's still present. So that that's another that follows a different logic, right? Like it's not following the capital. It's following what do I need at the moment? What can I give you? And then what can you can I get back? You know, it's like reciprocity. That doesn't mean that we can't survive, but at the same time critique the systems like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think that's where, for me, when Vivir was really interesting for me to kind of come into, um, you know, I don't know, it's been maybe a decade now that I've kind of been somewhat aware of it um, mm -hmm. and, and reading about it more recently and, and kind of seeing how it was playing out before because like in the US, it wasn't until I was in the grad program and when I learned about what neoliberalism was or when I, I could actually identify capitalism and the different stages of capital and its emergence and studying political economic theory, you know, and it took a, a master's level, you know, <laughs> to kind of become introduced. And then I go to Guatemala, you know, or, or you know, I'm spending time in different parts of Ishimuleo. And, you know, you have people who maybe haven't even been to university who know what neoliberalism is. And it's in their vocabulary of every day. And they're aware of these power, global power dynamics and at the mm -hmm. same time are, are navigating practical everyday, 
you know, realities. And so what I liked about this Wimby Vita was like pushing beyond survival towards where we can thrive. Like how, so I guess maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things and you can add to it, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how you understand Wimby Vita and, and how you define it and, and how it fits in your context, because it is in a sense, an alternative um, or a path, an alternative pathway elsewhere beyond our current paradigm um, that, that, that dominates us to think in the capitalist logics of value, right? Which assumes mm-hmm. that capitalism is natural and timeless, where actually we can point historically where it emerges and mm-hmm. how it changes over time. And trade isn't capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, economy isn't capitalism. Um, capitalism is one form of very uh, oppressive <laughs> economy yeah. with standardized, you know, measures and particular means and modes of production. Um, where you're talking about relationships and you're talking about gifting and you're talking about maybe even tribute uh, where the investment is different. And I see a lot of this in my work in the Pacific and mm. particularly around gifting and tribute where the reciprocity isn't, doesn't have to be immediate there. It's not a transaction. Mm. And, and, and what you do is you're investing in relationships within a community and even between communities, which allows for, again, like you mentioned, a different temporality of the value shifts and changes upon need. And that need could be community need. It could be ecological need. It isn't the standardized thing. And so Wimbivir for me is kind of this movement towards living well Mm. or good living. But I also think about it in the sense of like a a dignified life. Mm -hmm. How can we live with dignity? And so it isn't about surplus wealth. It isn't about, because that's the problem, right? Like we talk about poverty, but poverty only exists if wealth exists. Mm-hmm. Right, like they, they they're they're entangled like life and death, and so what's a what's an alternative of how to live dignified? Can we live with dignity? It's kind of how I began to understand and engage with it. But what what's your, I guess your take on it? How do you define it? What are your thoughts around Wimby Vida in the context of your work? Because the awareness of Wimby Vida and this the it's it's Wimby Vida have been considered like the colonial stance from indigenous peoples from Abiyala. Uh, we call it Semanawak in Nahuatl, uh, the American continent. Um, and then understanding, but you, you, we know that when Bibir became kind of more present in the early 2000s, right? Like it, because uh, the Suma, especially in Bolivia, Ecuador, with the Sumaca Usai in, in Quechua, Sumaca Mani in, in Aymara, and, um, and how this impacted the constitutions of, of these countries and stuff. So it's it started as more from the Andean communities, but then later on, just we have been looking into this. Oh, so by knowing what's buen vivir, let's say in, in, in Spanish, that, that it's recognizable from across the, the continent or the Spanish-speaking countries, then looking back into our own communities and say like, oh, but our buen vivir is called this. Our buen vivir is called this. You know, like different indigenous communities have different notions of buen vivir as, a, as an overall philosophy so in the context of chiapas and social and central communities it's called lequil kushlehal like very oh, like roughly translated it's like lequil is good and lehal uh, kushlehal is life so good living but it's an, an collective well-being but here it's very important to it's like not well-being from a western perspective but it's well-being it from an individual in relationship with their community and the natural social natural environment and culture. So um, 
so for them and 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 particularly i like the kirkush lehal because it's translated as well as vida digna y justa a fair dignified life so when i found the kirkush lehal in the context and knew about a fair dignified life it was kind of uh aha moment it was great because it's like okay the kirkush lehal which is part of their own worldview could be a great guideline or source of exploration to understand how textiles are related to Lekil and how textiles help them to achieve a fair dignified life. You know, so that is not trading necessarily. That is ways of being, identity, dressing, cosmovision. There's way a bigger perspective and trading textiles. It's part of it, but it's not all. So uh, it was very, very interesting for me to understand because we did a, a couple of co-design workshops with them, with them and the second field trip to understand, uh, to explore uh, a sensorial ethnography of sensorial exploration, multisensorial exploration of Lekil How does it feel? How does it taste? So it was very interesting because yeah, this, this kind of a multisensorial approach trigger different responses. So for example, uh, with, when one weaver with Lucy, uh, when we were, she, she drew a flower and then from the flower, she said, oh, it's very, it's like very common here and blah, blah. And then after a while she came back with the flower, like this is, this is like Lehal. So, and others, they, they, they draw patterns and the Holovil, the Baxter Bloom was very present in many times. And so it was, and also the heart, at least in Mayan worldview, the presence of the heart is key, is center of thought uh, and, and, and ways of being. So for example, in their language, when they say, ¿Cómo estás? Or how are you? Literally means, ¿Cómo está tu corazón? How it is your heart? And they will say, my heart is like raining and you know, like these metaphors with nature. So it's very, it's like the heart, the otan in Tzertal, but also, because of the importance, they have many ways and many terms based on community, could be koon, could be konton. So it's very different terms for the heart, but the heart is so connected to the well-being, the collective well-being, and also so connected to weaving, because they say when, when the weaving is not working, it's something wrong in your heart. Because the act of weaving, you have to put your heart into it and if you try to weave and it's not working or any textile work like embroidery or any textile work it's kind of a two-way communication because that indicates that something is wrong with me and at the same time by doing the weaving because for me it was like sensorial and also embodiment I learned I, I took classes from backstrap loom weaving and it was amazing just to go through my body, this understanding of the threads and what, how I felt, I could have a taste of Lekil Kuchlehal while being there. And as you said, poverty is not what we think. We were weaving outside in the in, in outdoors next to the chickens and, and the land with the corn growing up and chocos, ch chayote, which I love chayote, like you there don't have, but they, there is, I found sometimes, called chocos. Um, so everything, what they need, pumpkin, so what they need grows within the house, in the gardens, and then they have chickens, you know, like, 
and then I'm in touch with nature. My mom was there. I took my mom and my daughter into the field research because that, for me, that also was important just to show me as a, as a woman, not a, a, this researcher that comes and then we will, we will never see them again. Like my parents still live near the community. So for me, it was key just to, like, I'm not going everywhere. I'm rooted here. Yes, I don't live here, but I come. I come frequently. And my mom developed this connection with them as well. So they still in touch as well. And my daughter learned how to do embroidery there because she was six years and then she was a six-year-old you know like getting and then they saw her and they asked her if she wanted to do embroidery so she did but I mean going back into that experience just being there and just experiences because it's a very repetitive motion repetitive movements and stuff this state of kind of meditation that you're very mindful because you have to be very present in what you're doing in order to do it properly but at the same time this repetition and motion brings you into this state of sort of meditation so you can see that you know like the dialogue that it's happening with, with with the weaving and with the holobil because in one way it helps you to soothe yourself but at the same time it's showing you when something is going wrong that you need to look in your heart just to solve what is what is wrong what is happening so these ways of knowing and being is in yeah women's knowledge but also very connected to buen vivir because weaving is part of their well-being but also that's the way the, the designs and the things that they produce and they they sell they trade have empowered many women like many women so they have they they start bringing like uh, income to the house and that empowers them because they feel that they contribute. And actually, yes, based on another exp- conversations with some weavers, is like they, this also c- can create tension between, you know, partners and stuff in society. And and there was very like mm, like hard conversations to hear from them sometimes when they're like, oh, you know, like I have a instant for, uh, camera that we use for to for the exploration and then one of them she was she wanted like we, we took a lot of pictures and they kept a lot and stuff and she was saying that how this picture would help her to show to her husband that she was actually working and then she started talking like sharing her story of family abuse because she started to work more so she's starting to go to the city so he's starting like and the communities, people will judge. And, you know, like all of this stuff, this dynamic, but this family violence, because she felt empowered, because she was working with other women, because she was contributing to the household, because she was gaining independence, allowed her to put a stop into the violence, at least the physical violence, you know? So it's, it's a very complex world, but... But for me, it was very interesting. That's why Lekil Kushlehar and A Fair Dignified Life became, we, we talk about, uh, that's why I'm part of the, the research outcomes is the Buen Vivir-centric design. And one of these aspects is about this uh, resourceful, but thinking on other economies that are different to capitalism and working and operating for a fair dignified life. So ethics and dignity human and nature are way more important than capital so it's a shift in in... no i love that and it's a you know we're not there yet right no but it's like it's it's about 
envisioning this this pathway elsewhere this um this alternative that we can kind of move towards and um, I really appreciate, you know, you sharing all that. I think that's really great and such rich kind of uh, perspectives there. For for and Kachikel, Utz Kazlemal is how we, mm. so it's very similar, it's sounding to the Tzotzil. Mm. Um, and again, it's just like, it's it's hard to translate. You know, we use, yeah. we use good, dignified, dignified life to, to try to explain it. But there's there's other elements that are hard to translate. I think in, in Maori, if I were to say, what it's like is about holding the mana of, of a people, mm. right? Not just an individual, but of a people in a community, the, the mana motuhake or... or a nature. Yeah, and it, uh, yes, all of those relations. Mm. And is it tika, is it porno, mm. right? Like, is it... I think those mm. are words that I, I like in Maori that help kind of explain utzkazemal or benbibir and kind of those multiple relationships. Or in Tongan Balele, do you have a balanced mm. spatial relationship. Mm. So not just humans, but the ecology and, and all the relations in a particular place and kind of moving towards that. But um, I'll leave the last word to you and we'll close it up. If you have yeah. anything else you want to share. No, just like this when we read, like for example, I, I found like at least 10 different terms of when we read from different communities, you know, like Sumacamaña, Sumacansai, the ones that we live, like Jake Nemilis is from the Nahua community, Kumemogen from from um mapuche and then i've been finding way more like i i don't remember them now they are in the in the pieces but yeah there's many many it's, it was very interesting to just find that indigenous groups have their own versions of when vivir and and just to acknowledge that because sometimes we can we want to put like a buen vivir as a one thing but no it's like one thing is let's say where centric design which gives kind of a framework but this needs to be, let's say, this is just the seed. And that seed needs to be planted in new soil. So this soil, new soil have different conditions and different environment with different people. So we need to find equivalence, but it's not the same. And it won't operate the same way. But at least we can have as guidelines and, and guiding principles in order to create un mundo donde quepan muchos mundos. World with many worlds can fit. Muchísimas gracias. No, uh, gracias a ti. You know, thank you so much for, for sharing. No, um, tlatzokamati to you. Colabal.